Walsh, 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 Cardi Gill. Episode 65 of the Rebel Matters podcast coming out at last. If you've been waiting for this to come out on Friday, the 10th of April, then I'm sorry it's a little bit late. It's because I spent the last two days cleaning up my computer because it was full to capacity and refused to do anything got to do with the podcast or anything else until I sorted out a bit of space, a bit of storage space and memory space on it. So it sent me down the rabbit hole of about 10 hours of moving stuff over onto a hard drive and trying to find out where all the space was being taken up and everything like that. But nevertheless, here we are and um, I'm getting this little introduction ready on Good Friday today actually and the episode that I've got for you today is one that was recorded back at the end of November as part of the Quiet Lights Festival in Cork which is run by John Pearson and it was a panel discussion that was held in Plugged upstairs from the Roundy in Cork City and anyone who's familiar with Cork will know exactly where that is the guests on the show are three people who are all involved in um, I suppose putting on festivals and events and they are Shifra Quinlan who's a, a creative producer Ashling O'Reardon who is heavily involved in organising the Quarter Block Party It Takes a Village and loads more stuff and Emmett Condon from Homebeat and the festival Another Love Story I'm putting this episode out I've got a good few episodes lined up in the com- for the coming weeks and um I've actually been coming to terms with the workload of just making sure to get the episodes out on a consistent basis and kind of setting the foundation for that over the last couple of weeks. And I'd say over the last two weeks, I did a lot of interviews. And as I mentioned in loads of the episodes that I've kind of recorded over the last couple of weeks, doing the podcast has definitely been kind of like a lifeline for me because I get to talk to people on Skype and have the chats and um, catch up with people as well but then um, I realised there was quite a lot of work involved in getting all those chats and those interviews to the point where they uh, were ready to be made into episodes so I've been coming to terms with that over the last week or two and actually the support from everyone who has come on board as patrons to the show has been a massive boost as well, that's been one of the big things that's been motivating me to just keep on going and drive on through the workload but anyway, what I was going to say there was I, choo- I chose this chat specifically to put out this week because just a couple of hours ago it got announced that the lockdown situation that we have at the minute is going to be extended for another three weeks. And by the time it's finished, we're going to be into the summer. And one of the things that a lot of people look forward to during the summer are all the live gigs and the festivals and the get-togethers. And there's a big question hanging over now whether or not we're going to be able to have those festivals and gigs and whatever, whether they go ahead or not, they're going to be in a fairly different kind of environment as before for sure, especially this year. But I picked this particular chat to put out as this episode because which whatever form the gigs and the festivals take later on this year, it's people like Shifra and Ashling and Emmett that are going to be organising them. And this chat, it just really gave 
a brilliant insight into the sort of soul and the heart that goes into organising gigs and organising alternative kinds of festivals. And I suppose the, the effort that it takes and uh, everything that goes into putting those festivals together and the whole idea behind them. And I think in a world where, like when you think about it, this whole lockdown and the pandemic has brought into very sharp focus the importance of human interaction and the importance of uh, community and I think local business as well because you see a lot of small businesses like that are doing unbelievable work now in a time whenever like we really need it and then contrasted with a lot of the big multinationals that you know, fired their workers straight away and really at the end of the day a lot of them don't give a shit other than anything than their bottom line and I think the same can be said for um, certain elements of the music industry as well but it's all about profit and the bottom line and the commodification of the artists and the performers and talking to Shifra and Aisling and Emmett it just brings in the sharp light that there, there's another way of doing it uh, a more creative way and a more community orientated way and a way that's more focused on building friendships and having really unique experiences that are uh, very wholesome and that kind of benefit everyone who's a part of that and I think that whenever we come out the other side of the pandemic and the whole lockdown thing, that we're going to need that more than ever. Which is the reason why I chose to put the chat into this week of the podcast. So just before we get started, I just want to thank John Pearson for organising this festival because it's a crackery festival. It's all gigs are all scattered around um, in Cork City and different venues, really cool and quirky venues. And... Um, there was an unbelievable lineup there and the vibes were just perfect. And I think even just listening back to this chat myself was making me really look forward to uh, the next time that we can have a get together like that. And I've got a couple of episodes lined up uh, in the coming weeks with different people who are involved in the music and the festival world. So uh, I think it's kind of like the light at the end of the tunnel in a way when we get that, when this is kind of when we've moved through this phase of the whole pandemic and we're able to go out and see each other again and uh, touch each other again and socialise and have fun, I think there's going to be a massive release. So I think this little episode is like one of those things where you can get a picture of what goes in, what goes on behind the scenes uh, in, the, in organising those kind of get-togethers and festivals and I uh, look forward to it. Look forward to the next time that we all get to go out and have a party. Um. So yeah, I hope you're all keeping well and safe. And again, I think it's a good opportunity to for me to take a wee moment and thank everyone who's out there working on the front line and doing what they can to um, keep the health service up and running. Uh, 
and keep us in food and all the other crucial sort of services that have been provided and also thank everyone who's listening here for doing their best to stay inside and um, help stem the spread of the virus for Pride Hazel for doing that it's not easy and I'm sure we're all kind of going through a similar experience but yet we're all going through a different experience because we all have different circumstances some of us are in the house by, by ourselves like me and some of us are out working on the front line some of us are with uh, our partners or with our families other people are looking after other members of the family and all those things are very different circumstances and hope you're all doing okay is everybody else having mad dreams that's i am having the most mental dreams ever these days i dreamt last night that i was at a stand-up comedy gig with bill murray that he was doing stand-up comedy and i was watching it and he started taking the piss out of someone who was in the crowd this fella and the fella took offense to it and bill murray kept slagging him and the fella's girlfriend took offense as well and then the show was over and they ran off to try and find him to give out to him. And then somehow I, I ended up getting the picture taken with him. And he put his hands on my shoulders. And I was like, whoa, that's the first time anybody's touched me in a month. <laughs> it's really weird. And I've been having those weird dreams a lot. Um, the other day I dreamt that my face was melting. And I was walking through a hospital and everybody had coronavirus in the hospital. But that was more like a nightmare. Anyway, uh, I think regardless of how different our, our living circumstances are at the minute we're probably all going through something very similar in that there's high points where you're feeling all creative and you're getting your side hustles off the ground and you're doing a bit of gardening and keeping the house clean and all that kind of crack and then other times whenever um you feel like shit and uh that's definitely happened to me over the last couple of weeks and if you're experiencing something like that, like that then i suppose like that's okay that's just a part of the challenge of what we're going through at the minute and I've certainly kind of got a bit of a lifeline from being able to talk to people every few days for the podcast and I've also I'm also very fortunate to be able to call up my brothers and my mum and my dad and my dad's wife Breeze and my granny and stuff and have a wee chat with them and call some friends and some friends have been checking in and I've been checking in with them as well which is a very very fortunate position to be in and it's definitely uh, kind of made me reassess my relationship with my phone and the technology and everything like that there like whenever the computer was acting up yesterday I was like oh shit I was like if this computer breaks now it's, <laughs> it's going to be a difficult situation <laughs> because that's kind of like the land of the outside world Um. And I definitely found myself a bit more attached to my phone and my social media kind of accounts. So I've been trying to limit that a little bit and turn my phone off at night time about half past ten and not turn it back on again until after I've done a bit of stretching and had a cup of coffee and got myself together in the morning. But um, if you're feeling like crap at some stage, just know that that's going to pass and also um, pick up the phone and give somebody a call and let someone know. Uh, how you're feeling or just ring somebody for a chat and go for a wee walk as well get outside um it's a tough situation that we're in isn't it 
but it's going to pass and uh, there's plenty of good times ahead we just got to keep on looking out for each other and chucking my trees like hell anyway I suppose we better go on with the episode um, thanks for tuning in thanks for the support for the podcast especially thanks to everyone who's been supporting the podcast over on Patreon um, I've done a bit of work on the Patreon where there's now three tiers um, based on three of my favourite trees you can go over there to patreon.com forward slash rebel matters and find out what they are and find out what we perks you can get by signing up to the Patreon and if you want to become a patron you thanks a million um, it's a massive help especially considering the fact that uh, Ackley's closed down these days and uh, I'm kind of doing the podcast full time but then as you all know as well the podcast is free on all the platforms so if you're not in a position to support it that way then just share it on social media and send me a wee message and let me know you're listening it also makes a big difference so thanks a million to everyone who did send me a message unreal um, what else let me see mm. I haven't spoke to anybody all day so I'm kind of buzzing I'm just thinking or I'm just talking do you know as if like you're sitting here and we're just having the chats I went for a good wee walk today actually I've got the place looking well in fairness I don't know if he's found this but like you know anybody who's been obviously we're all in the house the longer I'm in the house I just keep changing wee things and the house is just evolving into like a wee nest I got a sheepskin rug today actually I've got it on the back of my chair right now it's very comfortable from this company called Connacht Wool and Hide uh, I seen them at Ballymaloo Craft Fair a couple of years ago and they were selling these sheepskin rugs and I bought one for um, my friends who were expecting a baby at the time Dara and Jess were expecting Lily in a few months and I brought it home and saved it and gave it to them whenever Lily was born and then uh, it's class I always kind of had it in my head one would be nice for the house so I ordered it the other day got it today so there you go anyway um, let's go on with this episode here uh, as well as usual at the end of the episode after the outro music there's a bit of Roald Dahl it's the last chapter of Roald Dahl's book Boy Tells Childhood so, if you want to go back to the start of the book, you can go back to episode 51. Uh, and if you want to hear the end of the book, then listen through to the end of this chat, and you'll hear it after the outro music. I've got another book lined up for you for uh, the next episode. I've already read this one with the Roald Dahl book. We were kind of reading it together, but this one, I hadn't even expected to put it on the podcast. I just got a lend of it off uh, Roxana Nicolaim, who is lined up for an episode as well we've already done the chat she lent it to me and it was fucking class it's only a short enough book so I just went off and recorded a few chapters so I've got the first chapter coming up next week for you and I'll tell you what the book is next week I'll keep it as a wee surprise uh, anyway, Shanae, so enjoy the chats here and thanks to John and all the crew at Quiet Lights as well thanks to Jimmy for hosting the show the the episode Jimmy runs the record shop plug that the episode was recorded in and actually just as an added thing before we get stuck on I just want to give a massive shout out to Jimmy because after the lockdown started it was before all the businesses had to close down like properly Jimmy was doing home deliveries of vinyls and hand delivered a couple of vinyls up to me and uh, it was great because I was just after getting back from America and I was 
feeling all lonely in the house and got a Karen Dalton record as well as the new Crangbin EP uh, Texas Sun brought them up to the house what a fucking legend and then and then Alex Bruce from Soma dropped some coffee up to the house lads this is what I'm talking about local businesses keeping the place going and it might seem like a small thing but you don't see fucking Starbucks bringing coffee up to your house do you no you don't so keep that in mind whenever we get out of this go and support all your local businesses Legends, Grimmina Wagaflets, uh, Bunsalt, S and Cora. It's actually kind of unreal to be doing a podcast in the club, so thanks for hosting us, Jimmy. Best record and venue, who does not say As you already know, this is a part of the Quiet Night Festival. Um, there's so many things happening around the city, and I think for me, like this really kind of sums up what a festival should be about. There's events all over the city, everyone's bringing something special, something different to the table, and I think it's really great pleasure for for us to be able to bring kind of a little bit of something different um, to you guys, so thanks for coming as well. Um, we're going to do about 40 minutes here, and uh, we'll introduce you to the guys in a second, but we just met up for a cup of coffee there beforehand, have a little chat about what we want to chat about, and I think we all realise that the title of the, uh, of the podcast today is uh, around social and cultural entrepreneurship, and all the guys are involved in their own projects, and uh, I guess like they're heavily involved in separate projects and the, the main drivers behind a lot of projects as well. We just realised when we were having a cup of coffee that, that we all have PTSD from doing things like this. And <laughs> it was like a therapy session, so... Uh, <laughs> yeah, sure. yeah. <laughs> we nearly didn't actually come here, we were going to just stay here and we'll transfer out our problems and like have a little cry and uh, we can do a podcast on a different day. But anyway, we made it around anyway. I'm going to give us a little, a little bit of a, uh, an introduction to the guys and then they can maybe uh, give us a bit more of an introduction about what they're currently working on uh, and introduce them as well at the end of the So Ashling over there is uh, one of the founders of the Quarter Block Party, uh, program the music stand. She works for the Good Room, which for anyone who's going to uh, Lankham later on is uh, up in St. Luke's and the, the Kino and the Cork Podcast Festival, which we did a podcast for also. And it takes a village, you know, because also um, Emmett Condon runs Homebeat, uh, which is an events uh, promotion uh, agency, I guess, or uh, <laughs> creator, music label based in Dublin, and also uh, curates the wonderfully magical Another Love Story Festival. And Siobhan, the chief, chief, sorry, sitting beside me here, uh, is the creative producer in, is a creative producer in Dublin, in Dublin. Uh, we won't put that against her. She works for the Southland Blues, uh, other voices, uh, 
and actually one of the most interesting projects that I think that I'd love you to talk about is the um, this land theatre piece that was uh, done in conjunction with people who are living in direct provision. And my own name is Andrew Carland. Uh, in this capacity, um, the uh, have the podcast, Rebel Modern Podcast, which you can check out the rest of the episodes and some other day, but on a on a everyday uh, day-to-day kind of capacity, I run a little personal training business, which is just around the corner from here, which kind of is a bit of a kind of concept business in that we have decided to do away with what most people associate with um, gyms and try something a little bit different, which kind of ties in with the social entrepreneurship side, and we have a, a, an egg wheel gym and a book club and we organise some other events, and the main project that we would be involved in at the minute outside of that is opening up a um, volunteer kind of community-based gym in the West Bank of Palestine in a refugee camp. So we can maybe talk about the ins and outs of that, of that in a little bit, but maybe you guys want to give yourselves a little bit of a, a more detailed or current introduction there. Ashley, you go first. Okay. Um, yeah, I suppose you said all my jobs there, so... <laughs> um, but Outside of that, I do some work in festivals. Um, this year, I was very fortunate. I got to work at Glastonbury, which is amazing, and I do End of the Road. Um, and that's kind of like where I seem to be getting more, really able to get more work. But yeah, I started off working in the Pavilion, which is where Dali is now, and uh, works there for three three and a half years until it goes down. Then did um with my uh, best friend, business partner, Keenan Sherlock, we did Southern Hospitality Board where we put on shows in the city and then from that then Quarter Black Party came about and so I'm actually not on the kind of managing committee of Quarter Black Party anymore. I decided to like, I don't know, try and give myself a little bit of time. <laughs> Um, so, but this year I'm doing a tiny bit of programming for them, but for the most part I'm kind of just letting let them do their thing, which is very nice. And then um, Joe Kelly, who I used to work with Pav, he started doing a lot of St. Luke's, and then as they got busier, kind of doing a million bajillion projects, I came on board with them, and I'm their operations manager now, and I do, so yeah, I'm a festival manager for It Takes a Village, um, I help with the running of the keynote now and live St. Luke's and whatever other crazy ideas that come up with. I'm like, okay, cool, let's let's do this. Let's make it happen. So yeah. So now I understand why Ashing has PTSD. Yeah, so uh, I suppose the two main projects, as I mentioned, are Homebeat and Another Love Story. Both um, kind of small uh, quite stupid ideas that have grown um, over the years and I kind of chase after them and they chase after me and kind of turn depending on the time of year and uh, I think goes so broadly we put on shows uh, in Dublin the odd time we make it down to, uh, to Cork for a glorious moment like tonight and um, uh, we've gone shows throughout the year in various spaces originally the home beat thing came from a series of house concerts and that's kind of grown into uh, shows in various spaces and as those spaces become rarer and rarer to find in Dublin uh, increasingly in, I suppose in more convention venues which is a bit disappointing in some ways but that's what it is um, and then another love story is a small but lovely festival which runs uh, um, an 18th century manor home kind of crucially inside the manor home um, which has handy a ballroom just at the back of the kitchen which doesn't happen mm-hmm. in most houses um, and that is entering year seven now um, and again, it was started as it was very much um, in opposition to the kind of large commercial themed festival, which we felt was kind of ubiquitous. 
at the time, about five or six years ago. So we're still planning that furrow, and it's the thing that we chase after year round. So those two things made me take up my time, and I've got a little six-month-old daughter who now takes up a whole chunk of other time. So uh, <laughs> if I'm swinging from that disco ball, you know, I've got me, I'm not off leash. So yeah, so I'm Shifra, and I work primarily with other voices as a programmer, so programming and development. Um, I suppose most broadly I'm a creative producer and it applies to, to various different projects. Um, I'm kind of realising what a voice is actually next week and what am I doing here? Um, but yeah, so, so my role with them has morphed to look after the creative education strands um, and then also be um, the conference Ireland's Edge. So we're sort of developing an arts and tech strand as part of that, which is which is growing. Um, and then, yeah, in terms of freelance projects, so I work as a creative producer on um, sort of like contemporary classical music and producing my own work as a vocalist and a composer. Um, and then a lot of the voluntary work that I've been doing over the past few years has now kind of fed into um, creative projects. Um, so yeah, working with people in direct provision. Um, and that has kind of grown into, um, yeah, a, a collaboration with Sir Ramsey, who are an amazing grassroots movement, so the Refugee Asylum Seeker Solidarity Ireland group. And we started running these solidarity sessions, and it's really just like a coming together of musicians that are living in DP and musicians that are local to the area, um, and they collaborate, and we have a great time. Great, thank you guys. So we've been given the sort of starting point uh, for the discussion of social and cultural entrepreneurship, so I think maybe a good starting point here uh, would be to maybe try and defend, because I think even just from talking to you beforehand, that we probably all have somewhat of a different kind of perspective on what social and cultural entrepreneurship is. So I'm going to throw it open to the three of us who want to jump in there. What, what do you think that that, that, that entails? Um, I would broadly say, guess that kind of the, the link between the three of us, I suppose, is that all the projects we work in um, have a, a focus on like on something that's not the kind of crass commercialism, you know, or just money first kind of approach. And generally, the community, like certainly with Ashley and obviously with Chief and her work, um, and where Homebeat and another love story we've come from is um, an emphasis on genuinely like focusing on a community that's maybe either underrepresented or that like um, is being kind of washed over. And um, certainly with Homebeat, like the idea at the start was like. Um, the house concert was just a really nice, intimate way of putting on shows at the time. I'd just come back from traveling and didn't really have a connection to the music scene. I had no, like, I loved music, but I had no, I had no in. I didn't know anyone who worked in Greenlands. I didn't know, uh, at the time, Dublin seemed a very closed community. As most cities do, to I said, is when you come back or you, you come in. Um, so, uh, homie, the thing that came out of that was a very intimate, a very, um, a very small community of people who kind of, gathered around that very quickly and the thing that has sustained it as a project has been that initial burst of intimacy and energy which which means there's a personality I hope to what I do um, and similarly with another love story it was set up to be something that wasn't that huge and um, unpersonalized festival experience where you've been fed through a machine from the minute you get to the car park and you're kind of you know, fed through the, the line at the start to get in there's no personal actually there's no personal experience or encounter in it um, so I would think that the, the broad link between what we all do is, is an emphasis on those things. I know certainly like the lads in Quarter Block, obviously what drives that is is, uh, is community around the space that it was set up in. Um, and very, and as well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, a lot of delusion, yeah, yeah. There's, there's, I think it's obvious from our chat earlier, there's a whole strand of this which could be kind of failures and 
the nerves around these things. But I suppose, um, and what does come out in a lot of these kind of conversations is, is discussions around resources and lack of money and stuff. And, and that can be kind of limiting in discussion. What's really positive about all the things that we talk about here is, um, is the heart and the passion that goes into these projects. And that's the thing that I would see as kind of um, cultural entrepreneurship, because entrepreneurship sounds like something that there should be money involved in. And very often with these things, money is not the focus. Um, but it's that heart and passion that I think is the core part of what separates entrepreneurship in a business sense and probably cultural entrepreneurship. And I, and I want to share culture and to, and to explore culture. I think that would be something. One of the kind of thoughts I've had about that that kind of cultural and social entrepreneurship is that in a way, in comparison to say the um, like a kind of crass consumerism where money is the main thing, it's kind of like a it's kind of like a straight line where there's the producer, there's the consumer, and then someone someone along the line is going to kind of suffer at the hands of it, whether it's uh, the environment if you look at some of the kind of the environmental impact of some of the big festivals, whereas the smaller things, the things that are let's say driven by small groups of people within communities are more of a closed loop in that everyone benefits from it. The person who puts the, the people who put the festival on benefit from it because they're a close knit team. The people who get the get the festival benefit from it because it strengthens the community and it strengthens the bonds within a city or a town. And for me I think that's a really important aspect of, of all of the projects that you guys have mentioned that you're already involved in. But why do you think there's such a space for those those types of things today? Like why how come we have like festivals like this and all the stuff you guys are involved in? And I think even just like, it feels like a million years ago, but when like the Southern Mass Charity Board, which is myself and Keelan's promotion company for a few years, like that was born out of us. Uh, we literally came up with the idea the night that the, the venue that we worked in closed down and it was like, we need to do something because we know that like once this place is gone, there's going to be a huge hole in the city. And it was for a while, it was very like, everyone was like, what, what are we going to do? There's, we, we've nowhere to go anymore. And... I think for us, and actually another big reason was that I had three shows booked. It was, it was actually Russell Gano family, a guy called Eamon Dunes from the States and Girlband. And I was like, I need to find somewhere to put these shows. And actually Jimmy, shout out to Jimmy, who uses the person that like really helped us in that time to make those shows happen. Um, but like, I think that that's where all this stuff comes from. Is like a need, just like there's, we need to do something to... Um, to have things to look forward to. I think that especially, like, it's it's always been the reason why I love going to shows and why I love going to festivals. And uh, I, I, I work in what I do is that, like, I think it's really important for everyone's mental health to have things to look forward to, you know, because, like, you know, you have really shit weeks and then you're like, okay, it's fine with this weekend. I'm going to see all my friends at Quiet Lights or whatever. Like, you know, I'm going to have that time. So it kind of gets you through... So then being able to facilitate those events, I think, is really lovely. It might not be the same experience for you as the person putting on the thing, but, like, you know, you do get different things out of it then. It's such an important point, something I've really come to realise over the last couple of years with some of the projects that you've specifically been involved in. For example, the it takes a village. Like, you just sit there at, you know, 3 o'clock in the morning and you look around the courtyard and there's all a big selection of the loads of the most up-and-coming Irish artists. They're all sitting there talking to each other. And I actually thought to myself, is this why these guys are out of putting this festival on to try and bring all these people together? And it's just strength. It makes such a strong bond between artists and even all the crew that were there yeah. and even the people who are around that. And then you go off to say another little festival like this and you see the same people. It does, like for sure, does something positive to 
the psyche of a community when you have that bond between people. And I think is it would it be fair to say that like there are certain issues like the direct vision that probably bring a certain Yeah, I think it, like just off what Ashton's saying, it's nearly as if it comes up as an antidote. Um, it's normally like it comes as a reaction to something, a rejection of something that you don't want to partake in. Um, and definitely with other voices and with this kind of vibe of the festival, um, it's a very different experience from, let's say, an MCD type festival. Um, and I guess the currency. But the currency and, and that outcome, um, I mean, it's, it's kind of intangible because when you're not working with big profit margins, and that's not necessarily the aim of the game, but the aim of the game is to create this intangible, intimate um, experience and it's a difficult thing to kind of coin um, but you, when, you, when you create it you feel it um, but with with the solidarity sessions I mean that definitely arose as I suppose kind of an antidote and a reaction to a lot of the hate that is um, in existence um, in, in our country and um, I suppose trying to ameliorate just fear around um around the unknown um, and trying to introduce new people um, and new migrants in, into our communities and collaborate in a way and to collaborate in a way where it doesn't feel like a, it's not like a charity gig it's not a like there's nothing patronising about it it's really a coming together of, of artists um, that are from different places it's nearly like the sort of like a cro- uh, what was I going to say like it's kind of like the, the cross section of uh, artistic curation and activism in a way when you end yeah. up getting that sense of duty to do something I was telling you is that so in the gym around the corner we have this thing where instead of doing meetings in place we just do a little lap and every time we do these laps we're walking around we start coming up with these new ideas and it was like the other day I was like look let's do the meeting and we'll go for a lap but like no more no more ideas like we can't keep <laughs> coming up with these ideas and running more events because like there's only four of us or five of us whatever and uh, so we went for a lap the other day and we were walking around and uh, by the time we got back we were like, fuck, we have to do an anti-Black Friday event. So uh, I thought Black Friday was actually this Friday, so we put it on, turns out it's next Friday. <laughs> 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 it shows what I know. You're just but, too honest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, so I, I guess that, that that's another question, I guess, is um, do, do you guys feel like a kind of a sense of purpose or some sort of drive and motivation to put these things on because of the fact that it's in essence it's going against the status quo it's breaking out of the mold or kind of going against the mainstream or something like that it's actually interesting because it's something i think i've forgotten a bit in the last like maybe year or two just like it's kind of it does get that idea gets worn out at the start you're like yeah i'm gonna gonna do this thing i'm gonna work crazy amount of hours to make these things happen and i'm not gonna pay myself and uh I'm gonna try yeah, yeah. You just you, you figure out ways of doing it, but like it's it's actually it's really nice to talk about this because I kind of had forgotten a little bit of those those are exactly the reasons why why we're doing all of this stuff. And like, you know, especially if you're if you're running festivals with like other voices and Love Story and Gordbacher who takes village, it's like it's not about you at all. Like it's not it's like it's this you're trying to like create this environment for people to enjoy themselves and like as you said, like for, for artists to come together. And I think especially with with uh, other voices and another love story, those are very big aims of that. It's like a collaborative thing with artists, but also the audience is very much involved as well and has like so much exposure to that. But um yeah, it kind of it 
I think I don't know, I can't remember what the question was exactly, but <laughs> a lot of the drive comes from like seeing uh, the energy that people are getting from the thing that they're, you're, you're putting on for them. Mm. Uh, is it another element of this social and cultural entrepreneurship, to, to use that term, is I think like it's to do away with the anonymity that comes with the massive franchise where artists can disappear, and workers can disappear, and the crew behind it can disappear, and then eventually like, then the audience disappears as well in a way, and it just becomes about the money. Like, yeah. and maybe you'd be well placed to talk a little bit about that based on the work you're doing. Yeah, I think and that's like, to follow on from what Ashley said, like, I think all those events, um, like the magic of other voices is that you're all together in Dingle. I think the thing that people first notice when other voices kind of moved from kind of the initial little kind of small TV thing in the church and when people really started to engage with it is that like, oh God, like I chatted to Grof Reese or whoever it was that I met on the street, like we got tickets to go to the church off, I can't remember, one of the bands who played on Friday night, we met them in the pub that night and they were leaving in the morning, they were like, oh do you want our tickets to go to, to, to gig in the church? Like that doesn't happen at Electric Picnic or you know those big festivals, um, like you said, with It Takes a Village, that meeting with people but that only comes from a very determined sense from the, I think, from the people who run the festivals down, that it's, um, a community is an overused word for these things, and it's kind of abused a little bit. But, like, it's a flat hierarchy that, like, we're all in this together, that artists should be sitting next to the audience. There's no reason in the world why they shouldn't, you know, they're just humans. And part of the things that stop people doing or making events like this from the outside is that they feel like, maybe bands or the people who run festivals are like, you know, superheroes, but they're just human beings. And it's taken me as a booker and a promoter, like, years to kind of get over the fright of actually chatting to someone who makes that amazing music that, that I listen to in my bedroom. But it took me a long time to, like, not freak out at that. And now... I still, I still do. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, yeah, I've made an absolute tit of myself. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually really humanizing as well when that happens to yeah. you after all the time. Yeah, and they're like, they're normal people and they have their own lives going on. And, like, and generally, nice music lends itself to nice people like, in a very broad sense. But um, yeah, I think like um, all those events and all these things that we're talking about kind of genuinely bring all sorts of walks people together and want them to interact as opposed to trying to separate them out and keep them away from each other to create some sense of like, or to, I don't know if it's to create a sense of mystique or it's, it's like it's to create a hierarchy that, that means money can maybe disappear somewhere and people don't know where it goes from something like that. It's really interesting as well because the, like a lot of the bigger festivals are now trying to like create that intimacy as well. It found like because it used to like the the oxygen and kind of electric picnic of those kind of big super festivals seems to have like. That's not the kind of festival people want to go to. Like they've gone to you know, the love story and they want that intimacy and they want to be able to see, as I said, like people just like like bump into graffiti's walk around. They want that now. So I think that like a lot of like the newer festivals happening are trying to imitate that vibe as well, which is really interesting to see that change. Yeah, there must be must be kind of some sort of primal programming in us when it comes to the festival that everyone's coming on the same level and people some people are entertaining and some people are watching and everyone's kind of like at ground level together in a way, but you, I mean, you mentioned something there uh, about sort of breaking down that divide between people, which in essence, when you hear people talking about direct provision, that's the whole problem with it, is that there's a group of people who are in, kind of in sort of some form of captivity in Ireland that have a, a, a no connection with the community that they're in or the community that they've, that they've come into. So has that been one of the kind of main factors with the work you're doing? Yeah, I think it has, and it's interesting to observe um, I suppose the ethos has to feed from within and, and observing how other voices 
um, truth as artists, you know, you're, you're welcomed into this community that looks after you while you're there. Again, yeah, community is becoming this really kind of like charged word in a way that like empowerment has kind of lost lost its meaning. But um, but I think that it's interesting to observe the I guess the sort of domino effect of that, where if if the crew feel that they're really nurturing um, the sense of community and then the artists feel extremely comfortable and then the way that they give on stage um, is even more vulnerable. And it's just this beautiful sort of cyclical energy that, that kind of occurs and it passes sort of back and forth. Um, and then, yeah, when I began volunteering in direct provision centres and in refugee centres in, in Germany, um, I suppose that was maybe something that kind of came with me. Um, and that feeling that, you know, it's not this divide of somebody's over here and somebody's over there, and that you can really facilitate um, that kind of collaboration. And it's actually very simple um, when you break it down into its most sort of human form. Yeah, if the bigger festivals are, I'll say, if, if certain, like if an organisation or a festival or something that kind of decides to try and appropriate that community sort of tangle mm-hmm. or whatever, I think that's the thing that you can't, you can yeah. take the term, but you can't take the ideas and the philosophy behind it, and you can't take the sort of the, the, the product really. Like, you can try and take the title, but um, if think, it's not coming from within and if it's just plastered on the top of it, yeah. So, to maybe like expand on that a little bit, like, what do you guys feel like the term community actually is at, at, as essence based on the work you're doing? Um, I suppose, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I suppose for me, um. With the work that I'm doing with Ramsey and these solidarity sessions, I guess reframing what community means, and I think I think often we feel that our community is the one that we came from and the one that we should exist in, um, and just sort of I guess reframing the the concept of that that communities can be created um, in ways that we haven't sort of yet experienced and. The idea of that is, is more diverse and it doesn't have to necessarily be a, a verbal exchange. Um, a lot of it is so is so non-verbal and that's what I think kind of the beauty of a music festival, this sort of coming together of people. And again, solidarity is one of those words which is being bandied around, but to watch a gig and to watch actually there's Cormac Beggy. Um Cormac recently, or well not recently enough, but two years ago, collaborated with a wonderful um, Syrian musician, um, an oud player, and himself and, and Lily McGrattan um, collaborated with Safe Khan, um, and they've sort of continued to stay in touch. And to see something like that, to see trad musicians from different countries and, and different traditions come together and pretty much non-verbally collaborate um, is just extremely powerful. And then you're constructing a whole new kind of Kind of community. Mm, and Emmett, you mentioned something earlier on that I think it, it can seem like somewhat of a paradox to put the, the term entrepreneur or entrepreneurship in the same sort of uh, sentence as community. Because like when I think about community, in a way, I kind of think that to be to say that you're a member of a community is not dependent on like your ability to pay to be a part of it. In a way, but then the entrepreneurship side, obviously, there is an element of like there has to be an element of. Uh, finance involved in it if say any of these festivals are going to take part then everyone still has to pay the rent and stuff like that there so I guess it's kind of a bit of a trade-off there in a way and no, or, or is it a trade-off? Um, yeah I mean um, I suppose all of these things like, we're not talking about super massive businesses uh, on any scale the same as your gym and I think your 
your work and how you uh, how you create your practice as a as a business is very similar and to all these conversations. Um, that doesn't lend itself to a lot of hard-nosed, big business decisions because you're concerned about other things as opposed to just money and just going in that straight line. We've talked already about the circular idea of people giving and getting out of a business as opposed to just kind of paying money, being taken advantage of, and then thrown out the door. Um, so it's a balance. Uh, and all these kind of community-led projects, whether it's like not-for-profits, I think the one um, the one element that runs a thread through all of them is a lack of resources, and it's, it's something that's difficult in all these, uh, especially small festivals. Like, it, we, um, like I know, like a really good comparison is that having talked to Joe about it takes the village. I think you guys load in on Thursday or maybe Friday morning, or Friday morning. because the, the site is uh, Chipokan Holiday Village yeah. where there's literally like we I go down on the Thursday morning and there's yeah. like kids running around everywhere, and there's like you know, an Ed Sheeran cover act in the main hall. <laughs> That like your well your father's played through like, yeah. two, like yeah. a yeah. first year like yeah yeah it's it's really yeah, it's bizarre. Yeah. What's more disturbing than the start of the festival is the end of the festival. Yeah, if you happen to stay after the festival is over a little bit, like we were sitting in the in the kind of canteen there, just kind of hugging on to these cups of tea, like, <laughs> and then the next thing we just looked up, there was kids everywhere. They were like with, yeah. with balloons, and there were like clowns and stuff. And we're like, wow, what's that happening? Yeah, and the giant just after taking off again. Well, on the opposite side of that, we we have a build now of about ten days. So we'd have kind of um, we'd arrive with a course staff for about five or six, and then we'd have up to a trek festival. We have staff of one hundred and fifty. So we like we have to feed and keep those people for ten days, whereas I say Text Village has the advantage of just being able to do it because the infrastructure is different. Yeah. So I suppose my point being is that like um, you know, these things really don't happen on a whim and a prayer. It takes quite even small things take quite a bit of effort, um, and most of them being under-resourced, rely on a huge amount of goodwill and effort from their core crew. Um, like all our crew are real good friends, and it's a real family affair and a love story. Um, the people who own the manor and who, like on the Monday we go in and we take out their TV and their rugs and their couches and then they let a thousand give or take people through their house into the ballroom um, for a weekend. We haven't had um, a book stolen, we haven't had like a picture taken off the wall in seven years, so um, all that thing feeds back into what we were talking about earlier about community and for, for us I think it's that trust, story, the key tenant of the whole thing is the personal family, Roland and Zoe, and Diana, their mother, and Ollie the dog, and the two kids, allow us stewardship of the house. And every year we talk to our staff about the fact that exactly what Chief was saying, that the crew are the people that hold the space for the festival. They create that sense of community. And the trust that the people feel um, when they arrive to the festival, that they're allowed into someone's actual home. So it's like, it's literally their actual home. Like they're allowed in there for the entire weekend. That creates um, an atmosphere and it creates a sense of, um, it creates a precedent for how people behave. And we don't really have a lot of, so far, we haven't had like a lot of um, hassles. We have a couple of famous, um, Acid Girl was a famous showcase, and um, a few other extraordinary um, uh, entertaining escapades <laughs> uh, every year. But, um, but in general, I think that, that trust has created that sense of community. Um, and it's that's that's the thing that holds it. It's, it's important. It's so true, and that it's in a, on a much smaller scale in our training facility around the corner from here. We have a little library in the back, and the policy is anybody can come in and take any of the books and just bring them back at some stage. But I don't think we've like lost any books. Just people bring them back all the time. 
they just know that they're, I don't know, is it, is it maybe like people get, are given a sense of value in themselves and then they respect that? And yeah, when, when you talk currently about the ideas of, um, you know, licensing laws and all the things that we're trying to fight for at the moment, especially in the, anyone who works in any sort of nighttime um, entertainment, and so much of the conversation is about, oh, you couldn't do that, you couldn't let people out till 7 o'clock in the morning, they go wild. And it takes a village, uh, another love story, uh, and other voices um, all happen in real places. You know, they happen in a, a business which is Trubalgan, they happen in someone's home which is Kalang Manor, they happen in a town that exists single. If you trust people to go there and act appropriately, and you don't tell them, no, you can't go there, no, you can't do that, no, you can't, you keep telling people you can't do things, they want to do it. But it's very basic psychological um, workings. So um, if, you, if you trust people, and if you trust people to stay out at 5 o'clock or 7 o'clock in the morning, who cares? It's going to be fine. If you trust people, they will actually repay you. And that's what happens with the books. Uh, we had a fundraiser in July, which uh, Ashling was kind of the volunteer as well. Everybody volunteered at it. It was the gym job. And we were raising money for this project that we have in Palestine. And the landlord agreed to it, but it, I don't even think we knew how, how big it was going to get or how busy it was going to get. But we sold about 350 tickets or something like that. And it went on until like 8 o'clock the next morning. And there was nothing like nothing happened. There was nothing bad. Well, my cousin tried to climb over the gate and fell off, and the gate was open. But apart from it was okay. But apart from that, um, and one guy jumped over the wall. But apart from that, it was all good. And it was just that idea. It's just everyone's kind of respecting the space and whatnot. Yeah. You mentioned the thing there, which I think is probably a good place to go with this conversation now about the lack of resources. Something that we talked about uh, earlier on in the summer was, I mean, the number one resource that we're talking about here is, is time and effort and the, the human resources. And I think you guys are very well placed to maybe talk a little bit about how you manage that and like, to, like the list of things that you guys are involved in is quite extensive and I'd be really interested to, to, to see how, how you manage it, how you decide which things to go with and which things maybe to put on the wrong finger or just like X completely and, and how, you, how that affects you kind of your, your own personal health in a way, I guess? Yeah, I think this year is the first year I've taken my own health seriously in like in the work that I do. Um, and it was like, it was, it had to happen because I wasn't functioning properly. I was like, I wasn't performing to the, uh, the I wasn't, I wasn't being the person I wanted to be in, in work. Um, and like, it was, it was really hard. Like I was, especially just around quarter block party because that was really something that like, it, it it was it wasn't something that we we're like let's do we kind of were like right, we have to do this festival we're going to do it and it happened and then it just kept kind of rolling on and like I was saying to you a ago that like I kind of should have maybe taken a break a few years ago but I was like this year I was like I was like okay cool I'm gonna I'm gonna do it because um, normally around this time of the year I'd just be trying my hair out trying to get everything done for the festival in February and. Um, it's just really, it's really rude to me to not have that element, but also it's really nice to like go home in the evening after working in the kino and doing like St. Luke's stuff and just be like, okay, cool, I'm going to watch Netflix and I'm just going to cook my own dinner for myself. So I think that like really you have to, you really get pushed in this work to your limits at all times. Um, like during the festival it's like you are just like operating fight in fight or flight you're like responding to everything that's happening so when you finish that you're completely drained like i'm sure you're the same but like i just get so sick after every festival i do it's like a week or two of like antibiotics or whatever to get myself back to being a functioning human but um 
yeah, it's it's taken a really long time for me to like take it seriously, but now that I am, it's like it's the most important thing for me. Um, because I don't know, I want to be able to function as a person outside of the work I do and um and have a bit of a life as well, maybe, you know. Um so yeah, it's uh, a lot of it is just like, yeah, as you're saying, just like being able to go, actually no, I can't do that and I'll do this thing, but maybe I won't do it right now, I might do it in a few months' time and yeah. Yeah, understanding your own limits and respecting them and listening to your body when it's like crying out for you to stop. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think also considering how much energy it takes to create that really safe vibe and create that ethos and to be able to give that then to the artists and to the, the community that you've gathered. Um, and that takes a lot of rest to be able to reserve that energy so that you can give it. Um, and I think it's something that maybe is learned along the way but not really spoken about but just the necessary recovery time post-event and I think there's kind of like a I don't know like an egotistical macho type um, mentality that underpins a lot of the arts of like you know I'm doing this and then I went to this and then I'm on tour and I'm and it's kind of like the more you do the more you've achieved but if you are running on low and you're not able to give and create that sort of intangible intimate connection that you that you're trying to create then then it hasn't worked um, and learning when to say like yes I could take on this big massive project and learning when it's just not gonna it's not gonna fly it seems like the key word there is is to create like if you're creating something that doesn't currently exist then that is you have to put a lot of energy into that thing to make it exist yeah especially because it was, it's not there at the minute and you want to make it there so, so where does that come from? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah crucially, like, I think the thing that I, I've learned over time is that, um, and you can get very easily swept up when you do these kind of things, because there's a lot of great festivals, there's a lot of great events, and you can get very easily distracted on what other people are doing, um, and you can look over your shoulder and you can worry about them doing it better or other people doing it differently. Um, I think the thing that's come to me in the last few years is that, like, um, like, the only thing that's unique about whatever it is you do is whatever's coming out of your own mind. So, like, your energy is the thing that's actually the most crucial thing in, in your work. If you're really personally, like, I think there's a difference here between going working in a petrol station, there's nothing wrong with it, but, like, you're going in, you're talking in, you're doing your hours, you're going home, you maybe don't have a um, personal connection with the work, like, in, in the sense that your personality is not intertwined. A lot of people who work in these kind of industries are very, very personally intertwined in their work, and their creation, the, the creative form of creating an event, uh, means that like you take the highs and the lows of it very seriously because you're so swept up in the whole thing, and it's so intrinsically part of how you view yourself and, and how the arc of your year goes in a work sense. Like I would, I really love having the love story now because it's I have one big project that I can kind of break the wave of the rest of the year off around. So it's nice, but um. If, if you don't manage your own energy and you don't protect your own energy, um, there's nothing special left, you know, like, what, what have you got to give at that stage? All you've got to give if you're working as a creative professional, all you've got to give is your own creative ideas, really. And if you don't have the energy to, to come up with that or you don't sustain yourself, um, like Ashley was talking about, if you don't create some sort of practice that allows you to, to do that in the fullness of how you do it, at the end of the working place. I was down a couple of days ago, as I was saying to you earlier on, with um, David Ling and Siobhan Pierre, and we got into this real deep conversation about creativity and how to, like, in essence, we all have that ability to be creative no matter what we're doing, and we have this blank canvas. And that's what, I mean, that's what you guys are doing. I guess that that's, you could take that perspective that anyone could take that with what they're doing with their lives and like, creating a piece of art in a way. Um, yeah, we're basically really crap musicians. I'm really bad musicians, so I had to get on with the stuff. Yeah. 
Yeah, <laughs> like I like I really believe that. Like there's um like the art of like for me anyway certainly like I, I love the program of the art of a full festival Friday to Sunday. It's really fun to get to fill in those dots and create a wave of energy that and to see people engage with that in the way you want it to do. And um, I think that's creative act. It might not be drawing or painting or it might not be or writing a song, but I think in its own way it's got a, a creative. I think that's a positive framing of the term creativity to step away from being stuck to the idea that it has to be a painting or it has to be a song because it, it can be thinking be like a really well done spreadsheet sponsored by uh, Topaz next year. <laughs> um, the ground. Um, I don't know, it seems, to, it seems to be going. I mean, I guess um, both the encouraging and discouraging bit, as we said, is when you see the bigger corporations kind of start to um, take on the language or the kind of feel of the smaller things and commodify it. I guess that's age-old and it's going to keep happening. Um, I think as long like, um, I'll speak for Dublin because I suppose I've lived there. I'll just say for the record that I'm from Limerick, just in case. Um, <laughs> I'm really yeah, um, but like seeing Dublin over the last uh, kind of ten years, like definitely there has been a, a wave of new energy. Um, like places like BIM, the music college, have changed the landscape of how music is produced and um, how kids are forming bands and are much more professional. And there's a whole new wave of of bands and artists and DJs and producers that was maybe even two years ago just bubbling under. So. Um, with a little bit of experience and only a very little bit, like it's it's interesting to see how things regenerate in the city, and that's going to keep going. Like uh, one thing I've learned for sure is that like there's going to be another. It takes a village. There's going to be another another love story. There's going to be another other voices, and um, people's drive to do these things um, isn't quenched because someone always has a special idea and feels like there's something special that they can do, or they have a bunch of friends or a type of music that they really love. And they want to share that with people. And that's going to keep happening, I think, and it's not going to stop. Even despite the forces of no spaces, higher rents, all those things just drive it on, actually, in a different direction. Yeah, that's kind of the point that you were making earlier on, Chipper, about, like, the, the, the more that there is something to fight against, the more that these things are going to start to keep coming up, in a way. Yeah, and I think in terms of sustainability of, of these models, um, I suppose the, the goodwill that, that drives it and how these different communities interact and it's so lovely to see you know different festivals supporting each other um, and these different communities supporting each other so I think that they exist but don't exist in silos is kind of is vital to, to them surviving as well. So I'm going to open it up a little bit if anyone has any, any questions you would like to ask any of us up here then this is your chance. Spreadsheets. <laughs> Like my, my own kind of um, when I think about kind of in, with my like rose tinted crystal ball or whatever the, the kind of when I think about the future of these types of things and if we're going to call it this kind of social or cultural entrepreneurship then I like to think that the future of entrepreneurship in general is based around these things because of the fact like when you look around at some of the major issues that we're that we're facing in today's society you guys have mentioned some of them already like 
the fact that resources are you know, like slim on the ground, rent is increased, and we have like the like things like the, the environment, the, the, the planet Earth to look after as well, which I think is something that is probably being considered more and more. And these types of projects, I kind of like to think that, and that more people become involved in projects that are they kind of that have that fruit cycle of mutual benefit for everyone who's involved in the cycle, and there's not always someone uh, kind of like left at the bottom of the pile. As such, do you think that that's becoming more popular? It was, it was interesting at, at End of the Road this year, just a professor we were having um, in Dorset in the UK. There was uh, this guy who was like an environmental investigator. He was like, he went around to the whole site and did like a big evaluation about how, so it is quite an eco friendly site as is, but he was like trying to figure out how it could work even better. And I think that that's like, like, I do think that the word sustainability is another one of those words that's kind of been um, taken and kind of capitalised on. But I think that, like, it's not a bad thing. It's a really great thing. I think that that's where all of these things need to go, is, like, sustainability within themselves and um, kind of leaving less of a, a footprint afterwards, you know, that they can happen, but that they um, there's not, like, loads of tents left behind afterwards as well, you know. I think, yeah, allowing culture to, to fill those spaces because it sort of forces us to engage emotionally with things that we might otherwise push away. Um, and there's, so there's a project that we're working on for next week for Other Voices as part of the Creative Education Strand where we collaborate with Clean Coast, which is like an Antashka initiative. Um, and we're bringing together a group of kids that are kind of under the age of 10 and they'll work with an environmentalist who will kind of you know, talk about the earth and the sea and how we're destroying the planet and the kids will kind of you know absorb that and then they'll be facilitated by God knows and Denise Chela and they will help the kids kind of verbalize not just what they think but what they feel about all of that and hopefully there'll be some kind of song or a rap or a piece of something but I think like the role of culture in getting us to emotionally engage with those issues is kind of key because that's what then drives the energy towards maybe actually changing something. Like on a very basic, on a very basic reading, like festivals of gathering, gatherings of people, like very large scale gatherings, like is there anything that has been um, more pervasive in, in like introducing ideas about sustainability or other practices? Like I would say on the opposite side, um, um, we spend every summer in Cardan and Kerry and in the last few years there's been, each August weekend there's been like a, a load of kids down there leaving tents behind. We just would have never done that when we were kids. Like we would never have thought to do it. And I would say big festivals are actually very, 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 very to blame for that. They've created a culture to this point where suddenly they're interested in sustainability because it's gone seven tickets. But to this point, they're like they have encouraged people to let be tents leave tents behind because yeah. they haven't actually told them not to. They didn't even put a sign up. I never saw a sign in years going to the electric picnic. I never once saw a sign in the campsites that said, "Please don't leave your tent behind." Never once. So like when I see tents being left in Derry Island in the dunes every August, I go, well, what are the big collections of people? Where are these kids learning to do this? It's easy. They're learning at festivals. So we have a huge responsibility and an opportunity when we gather people to create an atmosphere or to, to teach people things. It might be have three pints instead of two pints. It might be don't bring your tents home. It might be go completely nuts. Whatever your thing is you want to give to people, but you have that opportunity when you gather people together. Like you mentioned something there, which I think might be a good um, kind of point to maybe finish up our conversation about festivals being a, a gathering of people, and in that, like that's a it's a, it's an age old 
like practice that we're that we've always had and we always are gonna have. Mm-hmm. And it's a time when people come together and share ideas and share food and meet each other and you know fall in love and spend great time together. And I think that um, you know I don't think that we'll ever be able to measure the value of that and the importance of it and the importance of keeping it going, festival festivals and also like the thing the music and the and the fun that happens at festivals. So um, on that note, I would uh, like from the bottom of my heart to thank the three of you guys, not only for coming and taking part in this uh, beautiful uh, chat with all these people here as part of the Pioneers, but also for all the work that you guys are doing for curating and giving those opportunities for people to come together, because I think that it is absolutely priceless. So, Gregory and Wildef. Thank you guys for coming. I uh, hope you enjoyed the rest of the night. And also, um, thanks to Quiet Nights and everyone. This is the last instalment of Roald Dahl's book, Boy Tales of Childhood. As I mentioned before, this is my first time reading this book as well. So we've kind of been reading it together, which has been fun. And uh, people have been sending me wee messages here and there to say that they're enjoying the little story time at the end of the podcast episodes. So I might try and find something else to read for the next episode of the podcast. Anyway, this book is called the sorry, this chapter is called Games and Photography. And there's one more chapter left after this as well, which we'll get through them the two of them today. Games and Photography. It was always a surprise to me that I was good at games. It was an even greater surprise that I was exceptionally good at two of them. One of these was called Fives, the other was called Squash Rackets. Fives, which many of you will know nothing about, was taken seriously at Repton and we had a dozen massive glass-roofed fives courts kept always in perfect condition. We played the game of eating fives, which is always played by four people, two on each side, and basically it consists of hitting a small, hard, white, leather-covered ball with your gloved hands. The Americans have something like it, which they call handball, but eating fives is far more complicated because the court has all manner of ledges and buttresses built into, into, built into it, which help make, the, make it a subtle and crafty game. Fives is possibly the fastest ball game on earth, far faster than squash, and the little ball ricochets around the court at such a speed that sometimes you can hardly see it. You need a swift eye, strong wrists, and a very quick pair of hands to play fives well, and it was a game I took to right from the beginning. You may find it hard to believe, but 
I became so good at it that I won both the junior and the senior school fives in the same year when I was 15. Soon I bore the splendid title Captain of Fives and I would travel with my team to other schools like Shrewsbury and Uppingham to play matches. I loved it. It was a game without physical contact and the quickness of the eye and the dancing of the feet were all that mattered. A captain of any game at Repton was an important person. He was the only one who selected the members of the team for matches. He and only he could award colours to others. He would award school colours by walking up to the chosen boy after a match and shaking him by the hand and saying, Gregor's on you, teamer. These were the magic words. They entitled the new teamer to all manner of privileges, including a different coloured hat band on a straw hat and fancy braid and a fancy braid around the edges of his blazer and different coloured games, clothes and all sorts of other advertisements that made the teamer gloriously conspicuous among his fellows. A captain of any game, whether it was football, cricket, fives or squash, squash, had many other duties. It was he who pinned the notice on the school notice board on match days announcing the team. It was he who arranged fixtures by letter with other schools. It was he and only he who had it in his power to invite this master or that to play against him and his team on certain afternoons. All these responsibilities were given to me when I became captain of fives. Then came the snag. It was more or less taken for granted that a captain would be made a bozer in recognition of his talents. If not a school bozer, then certainly a house bozer. But the authorities did not, li- did not like me. I was not to be trusted. I did not like rules. I was unpredictable. I was therefore not bozer material. There was no way they would agree to make me a house bozer, let alone a school bozer. Some people are born to wield power and to exercise authority. I was not one of them. I was in full agreement with my housemaster when he explained this to me. I would have made a rotten bozer. I would have let, had let down the whole principle of bozerdom by refusing to beat the fags. I was probably the only captain of any game who's never become a bozer at Repton. I was certainly the only unbozed double captain because I was also captain of the squash rackets and to, and to pile glory upon glory, I was in the school football team as well. A boy who is good at games is usually treated with great civility by the masters at an English public school. In much the same way, the ancient Greeks revered their athletes and made statues of them in marble. Athletes were the demigods, the chosen few. They could perform glamorous feats beyond the reach of ordinary mortals. Even today, fine footballers and baseball players and runners and all other great sportsmen are much admired by the general public and advertisers use them to sell breakfast cereals. This never happened to me, and if you really want to know, I'm awfully glad it didn't. But because I loved playing games, life for me at Repton was not totally without pleasure. Game playing at school is always fun if you happen to be good at it, and it is a, he- it is a hell if you're not. I was one of the lucky ones, and all those afternoons on the playing fields and in the fives courts and the squash courts made the otherwise grey and melancholy days pass a lot more quickly. There was one other thing that gave me great pleasure at this school, and that was photography. I was the only boy who practiced it seriously, and it was not quite so simple a business 50 years ago as it is today. I made myself a little darkroom in the corner of the music building, and in there I loaded my glass plates and developed my negatives and enlarged them. Our arts master was a shy, retiring man called Arthur Norris, who kept himself well apart from the rest of the staff. Arthur Norris and I became close friends and during my last year he organised an exhibition of my photographs. He gave the whole of the art school over to this project and helped me to get my enlargements framed. 
The exhibition was, ra was rather a success and masters who had hardly ever spoken to me over the past four years would come up and say things like, it's quite extraordinary. We didn't know we had an artist in our mists. Are they for sale? Arthur Norris would give me tea and cakes in his flat and would talk to me about painters like Cezanne and Manet and Matisse and I've, I have a feeling that it was there having tea with this gentle, soft-spoken Mr Norris in his flat on, a Sunday, on Sunday afternoons that my great love of painters and their work began. After leaving school, I continued for a long time with photography and I became quite good at it. Today, given a 35mm camera and a built-in exposure meter, anyone could be an expert photographer. But it was not so easy 50 years ago. I used glass plates instead of film and each of those had to be loaded into a separate container in the darkroom before I set out to take pictures. I usually carried with me six loaded plates, which allowed me only six exposures, so that clicking the shutter even once was a serious business that had to be carefully thought out beforehand. You may not believe it, but when I was 18, I used to win prizes and medals from the Loyal Royal Phot Photographic Society in London and from other places like the Photographic Society of Holland. I even got a lovely big bronze medal from the Egyptian Photography Photographic Society in Cairo. And I still have the photograph that won it. It was a picture of one of the so-called seven wonders of the world, the Arch of Cetophon in Iraq. This is the largest unsupported arch on earth, and I took the photograph while I was training out there for the RAF in 1940. I was flying over the desert solo in an old Hawker Hart biplane, and I had my camera around my neck. When I spotted the huge arch standing alone in the sea of sand, I dropped one wing and hung in my straps and let go of the stick while I took aim and clicked the shutter. It came out fine. Goodbye to school. During my last year at Repton, my mother said to me, would you like to go to Oxford or Cambridge when you leave school? In those days, it was not difficult to get into either of those great universities so long as you could pay. No, no thank you, I said. I want to go straight from school to work for a company that will send me to wonderful faraway places like Africa or China. You must remember that there was virtually no air travel in the, in the early 1930s. Africa was two weeks away from England by boat and it took you about five weeks to get to China. These were distant and magical lands and nobody went to them just for a holiday. You went there to work. Nowadays you can go anywhere in the world in a few hours and nothing is fabulous anymore. But it was very different matter. In 1934. So during my last term I applied for a job only to those companies that would be sure to send me abroad. They were the Shell Company, Eastern Staff, Imperial Chem Chemicals, Eastern Staff and a Finnish lumber company whose name I've forgotten. I was accepted by the Imperial Chemicals and by the Finnish lumber company but for some reason I wanted most of all to get it in, into the Shell Company. When the day came for me to go up to London for this interview, my housemaster told me that it was ridiculous for me to even try. The eastern staff of Shell are the creme de la creme, he said. There will be at least 100 applicants and about five vacancies. Nobody has a hope unless he's been head of school or head of the house, and you aren't even a house prefect. My housemaster was right about the applicants. There were 107 boys waiting to be interviewed when I arrived at the head office of the Shell Company in London, and there were seven places to be filled. Please don't ask me how I got one of those places I don't know myself, but get it, I did. And when I told my housemaster the good news on my return to the school, he didn't congratulate me or shake me warmly by the hand. He turned away muttering, all I can say is I'm damn glad I don't own any shares in Shell. I didn't care any longer what my housemaster thought. It was all, I was all set. I had a career. It was lovely. I had to leave school for 
ever in July 1934 and joined the Shell Company two months later in September, when I would be exactly 18. I was to be an Eastern Staff trainee at a salary of £5 a week. That summer, for the first time in my life, I did not accompany the family to Norway. I somehow felt the need for a special kind of last fling before I became a businessman. So, while still at school during my last term, I signed up to spend August with something called the Public Schools Exploring Society. The leader of this outfit was a man who had gone with Captain Scott on his last expedition to the South Pole, and he was taking a party of senior schoolboys to explore the interior of Newfoundland during the summer holidays. It sounded like fun. Without the slightest regret, I said goodbye to Repton forever and rode back to Kent on my motorbike. This splendid machine was a 500cc aerial, which I had bought the year before for £18, and during my last term at Repton, I kept it secretly in a garage along the Wellington Road about two miles away. On Sundays, I used to walk to the garage and disguise myself in helmet, goggles, old raincoat and rubber warders, and ride all over Derbyshire. It was fun to go roaring through, the Repton, through Repton itself, with nobody knowing who you were, swishing past the masters, walking in the street and circling around the dangerous and superlicious school bozers out for their Sunday strolls. I trembled to think what would have happened to me had I been caught, but I wasn't caught. So on the last day of the term, I zoomed joyfully away and left school behind me forever and ever. I was not quite 18. I had only two days at home before I was off to Newfoundland with the public schools explorers. Our ship sailed from Liverpool at the beginning of August and took six days to reach St John's. There was about 30 boys of my own age on the expedition, as well as four experienced adult leaders, but Newfoundland, as I found out, was not much of a country. For three weeks, we trudged all over that desolate land with enormous loads on our backs. We carried tents and ground sheets and sleeping bags and saucepans and food and axes and everything else one needs in the interior of an unmapped, uninhabitable and inhospitable country. My own load, I know, weighed exactly 114 pounds and someone else always had to help me hoist the rucksack on my back in the mornings. We lived on pemmican and lentils, and the twelve of us who had, been, who had went separately on what was called the long march from the north to the south of the island and back again suffered a good deal from lack of food. I can remember very clearly how we experimented with eating boiled lichen and reindeer moss to supplement our diet, but it was a genuine adventure, and I returned home hard and fit and ready for anything. There followed two years of intensive training with the Shell Company in England. We were seven trainees in that year's group and each of us was being carefully prepared to uphold the majesty of the Shell Company in one or another remote tropical country. We spent weeks at the huge Shell Haven refinery with a special instructor who taught us all about fuel oil and diesel oil and gas oil and lubricating oil and kerosene and gasoline. After that we spent months at the head office in London learning how the great company functioned from the inside. I was still living in Bexley, Kent with my mother and three sisters and every morning, six days a week, Saturdays included, I would dress neatly in a sombre grey suit, have breakfast at 7.45 and then with a brown trilby on my head and a furled umbrella in my hand, I would board the 8.15 train to London together with a swarm of other equally sombre suited businessmen. I found it easy to fall into their pattern. We were all very serious and dignified gents taking the train to our offices in the city of London where each of us, so we thought, was engaged in high finance and other enormously important matters. Most of my companions wore hard bowler hats and a few like me wore soft triblies. But not one of us on that train in the year of 1934 went bareheaded. 
wasn't done, and none of us, even on the sunniest days, went without his full umbrella. The umbrella was our badge of office. We felt naked without it. Also, it was a sign of respectability. Road menders and plumbers never went to work with umbrellas. Businessmen did. I enjoyed it, I really did. I began to realise how simple life could be if one had a regular routine to follow with fixed hours and a fixed salary and, a very, and very little original thinking to do. The life of a writer is absolute hell compared with the life of a businessman. The writer has to force himself to work. He has to make his own hours and if he doesn't go to his desk at all, there is nobody to scold him. If he is a writer of fiction, he lives in a world of fear. Each new day demands new ideas and he can never be sure whether he is going to come up with them or not. Two hours of writing fiction leaves this particular writer absolutely drained. For those two hours, he's been miles away. He's been somewhere else, in a different place, with a totally different people. And the effort of swimming back into normal surroundings is very great. It's almost a shock. The writer walks out of his workroom in a daze. He wants a drink. He needs it. It happens to be a fact that nearly every writer of fiction in the world drinks more whiskey than is good for him. He does it to give himself faith, hope and courage. A person is a fool to become a writer. His only compensation is absolute freedom. He has no master except his own soul, and that, I am sure, is why he does it. The Shell Company did us proud. After 12 months at head office, we trainees were all sent away to various Shell branches in England to study salesmanship. I went to Somerset and spent several glorious weeks selling kerosene to old ladies in remote villages. My kerosene motor tanker had a tap at the back, and when I rolled into Shepton Mallet or Midsummer Norton, or Pagedown St John's, or Hinton Blute, or Temple Cloud, or Chu Manga, or Huish Champflower, the old girls and the young maidens would hear the roar of my motor and would come out of their cottages with jugs and buckets to buy a gallon of kerosene for their lamps and their heaters. It is fun for a young man to do that sort of thing. Nothing gets a nervous breakdown or a heart attack. Nobody gets a nervous breakdown or a heart attack from selling kerosene to gentle country folk from the back of a tanker in Somerset on a fine summer's day. Then suddenly, in 1936, I was summoned back to head office in London. One of the directors wished to see me. We're sending you to Egypt, he said. It'll be a three-year tour, then six months leave. Be ready to go in one week's time. Oh, but sir, I cried out, not Egypt. I really don't want to go to Egypt. The great man reeled back in his chair as though I had slapped him in the face with a plate of poached eggs. Egypt, he said slowly, is one of our finest and most important areas. We're doing you a favour in sending you there, instead of to some mosquito-ridden place in the swamps. I kept silent. May I ask why you do not wish to go to Egypt, he said. I knew perfectly well why, but I didn't know how to put it. What I wanted was jungles and lions and elephants and tall coconut palms swaying on silvery beaches. And Egypt had none of that. Egypt was desert country. It was bare and sandy and full of tombs and relics and Egyptians, and I didn't fancy it at all. What is wrong with Egypt? The director asked me again. It's, it's, uh, it's, I stammered, it's too dusty, sir. The man stared at me. Too what? He cried. Dusty, I said. Dusty, he shouted. Too dusty. I've never heard such rubbish. There was a long silence. I was expecting him to tell me to fetch my hat and coat and leave the building forever, but he didn't do that. He was an awfully nice man and his name was Mr. Godber. He gave a deep sigh and rubbed a hand over his eyes and said, Well, very well then, if that's the way you want it. Redfern will go to Egypt instead of you, and you'll have to take the next posting that comes up, dusty or not. Do you understand? Yes, sir, I realise that. 
If the next vacancy happens to be in Siberia, he said, you'll have to take it. I quite understand, sir, I said, and thank you very much. Within a week, Mr. Godber summoned me again to his office. You're going to East Africa, he said. Hooray, I shouted, jumping up and down. That's marvellous, sir. That's wonderful. How terrific. The great man smiled. It's quite dusty there too, he said. Lions, I cried, and elephants and giraffes and coconuts everywhere. Your boat leaves from London docks in six days, he said. You get off at Mambosa, M- Mombasa. Your salary will be £500 per annum and your tour is for three years. I was 20 years old. I was off to East Africa, where I would walk about in khaki shorts every day and wear a toppy on my hat. I was ecstatic. I rushed home and told my mother. And I'll be gone for three years, I said. I was her only son and we were very close. Most mothers faced with a situation like this would have shown a certain amount of distress. Three years is a long time and Africa was very far away. There would be no visits in between, but my mother did not allow even the tiniest bit of what she must have felt to disturb my joy. Oh, well done you, she cried. It's a wonderful news. And it's just where you wanted to go, isn't it? The whole family came down to London docks to see me off on the boat. It was a tremendous thing in those days for a young man to be going off to Africa to work. The journey alone would take two weeks, sailing through the Bay of Biscay, past Gibraltar, across the Mediterranean, through the Suez Canal and the Red Sea, calling in at Aden and arriving finally at Mombasa. What a prospect that was. I was off to the land of palm trees and coconuts and coral reefs and lions and elephants and deadly snakes and a white hunter who'd lived 10 years in Mwanza had told me that if a black mamba bit you, you died within the hour, writhing in agony and foaming at the mouth. I couldn't wait. Although I didn't know it at the time, I was sailing away for a good deal longer than three years because the Second World War was to come along in the middle of it all. But before that happened, I got my African adventure all right. I got to the roasting heat and the crocodiles and the snakes and the long safaris up country, selling shell oil to the men who ran the diamond mines and the, the sisal plantations. I learned about an extraordinary machine called Decorticator. Decorticator. A man I, a name I always loved, which shredded the big leathery sisal leaves into fibre. I learned to speak Swahili and to shake the scorpions off my mosquito boots in the mornings. I learned what it was like to get a malaria, to get malaria and to run a temperature of 105 degrees Fahrenheit for three days. And when the rainy seasons came and the water poured down into solid sheets and flooded the little dirt roads, I learned how to spend nights in the back of a stifling station wagon with all the windows closed against marauders from the jungle. Above all, I learned how to look after myself in a way that no young person can ever do by staying in civilization. When the big war broke out in 1939, I was in Dar et Salaam, and from there I went up to Nairobi to join the RIF. Six months later, I was, in a fighter, I was a fighter pilot flying hurricanes all around the Mediterranean. I flew in the western desert of Libya and Greece and Palestine and Syria in Iraq and in Egypt. I shot down some German planes and I shot down I got shot down myself, crashing in a burst of flames and crawling out and getting rescued by brave soldiers crawling on their bellies all over the sand. I spent six months in hospital in Alexandria and when I came out I flew again. But all that is another story. It has nothing to do with childhood or school or gobstoppers or dead mice or bozers or summer holidays among the islands of Norway. It is a different tale altogether and if all goes well I may give a shot at telling it one of these days.